The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 31 of The Murder of My Family. This episode starts off a run of all new episodes. Before we get started, please allow me a moment to share some important information with you and catch up on a few things. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit TheMurderInMyFamily.com You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderInMyFam or by searching for the Murder in My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting Patreon.com forward slash TheMurderInMyFamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shoutouts to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Clear Soroy's Melvin and my friends at the Gone Cold podcast. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate and help keep the show growing and improving. Spring is officially here, and June is creeping up. And that can only mean CrimeCon, the true crime convention in New Orleans. I'll be there on Podcast Row, June 7th through 9th, and I hope you'll be there too. If you're going, stop by and say hi. If you need to register still, visit CrimeCon.com to register and purchase badges. And at checkout, use my promo code CRIMINOLOGY19 to save 10% on your standard badge purchase. Again, that promo code is CRIMINOLOGY19. And as a special thank you, the next three users that use that promo code CRIMINOLOGY19 to purchase their CrimeCon badges will get a podcast merch gift pack, which includes copies of my books about the Zodiac and Golden State Killers, stickers, coffee mugs, and more. And I'll give it to you in person at CrimeCon. So save some money and get some free merch in the process. And before CrimeCon, I'll be in Albany, New York on April 15th and 16th, attending the 2019 ASOC Convention. That's the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases Convention. And I'll be there alongside Tim and Lance from the Crawl Space and Missing Maura Murray podcast. Joining us on the panel will be one of my co-hosts from my new podcast, Three Men in a Mystery, John Lorden. We'll be there discussing how podcasts can help investigators and families in cold cases. So if you're in that area, I hope you'll stop by. And speaking of my new podcast, Three Men in a Mystery, it recently launched, and our topic for Season 1 is the 1999 murders of Tracy Hollett and J.B. Beasley in Ozark, Alabama. 
As luck would have it, an arrest in that case just happened days ago. But I promise you, there are a lot more details and clues to come out in that case. And we'll be discussing them all at great length on Three Men and a Mystery. So if you haven't already checked out the show, look for Three Men and a Mystery wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to it, and you'll be able to listen to the first couple episodes out right now. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's get on with the show. In eastern New Orleans, during the warm, early morning hours of June 13, 1981, a shocking crime tore through the community and ripped apart a loving family. The brutal murder of George Edgar Abshire, known as Eddie to his friends and loved ones, still remains unsolved today, with almost 40 years passing without Eddie's murder being brought to justice. At the time of his murder, 31-year-old Eddie and his wife Vicky, his high school sweetheart, were proud parents of five children, three girls and two boys, ranging from 22 months to 12 years old. In June of 1981, the Abshires had been living in New Orleans for less than a year. Previously, the family had resided in Marietta, Georgia for many years. In October of 1980, Eddie moved with his family to New Orleans so he could follow his calling in the ministry. The Abshires lived on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary campus in family housing while Eddie pursued his master's in divinity. While in Georgia, Eddie was employed in the restaurant business as a manager at Bonanza Steakhouse. By all accounts, Eddie was well-liked and respected by his employees, and he did excellent work. So much so that the company gladly approved his transfer to one of their restaurants in New Orleans. Eddie's new position as night manager of the Bonanza Steakhouse, located only 10 minutes east of campus, offered him the schedule he needed to complete his studies, but still spend quality time with his family. Eddie was working at the restaurant on the evening of June 12th, when Vicky called at around midnight to ask him to grab some milk on his way home for their toddler. During the call, he mentioned he was wrapping things up and he'd be home shortly. Vicky woke up a few hours later at 3 a.m., startled, and concern crept over her when she realized her husband had failed to return home. After her calls to the restaurant went unanswered, Vicky contacted campus security and they reached out to local hospitals to see if Eddie had been in an accident. After all attempts to locate Eddie failed, at around 6.30 a.m. on June 13th, Vicky and a campus security officer headed to the Bonanza Steakhouse. When they arrived, they were greeted by the family station wagon sitting in the parking lot, but there was no sign of Eddie. Moving towards the restaurant with a growing sense of dread, Vicky tried the door and found it locked. Out of options, she called police. A few minutes later, police arrived on the scene, and after breaking through the front door, they carefully moved through the business, searching for Eddie. His lifeless body was discovered in the hallway at the rear of the restaurant, by the storeroom and under the time clock. Eddie's white undershirt had been pulled up and wrapped around his head. The shirt was bloody, and closer examination revealed numerous stab holes in the fabric. The pool of blood around Eddie's body had begun to coagulate. Police carefully combed through the building, but no suspects or murder weapons were found. When the crime scene technicians arrived to process the scene, they lifted fingerprints, took photographs, and removed the white shirt from Eddie's head and took it into evidence. Considering when Vicky last talked to her husband on the phone and when his body was discovered, 
time of death was determined to be between midnight and 6 a.m. on June 13th. The investigators called in the day manager of the restaurant and all of the staff members who had been on shift the evening before to be interviewed. The day manager reported that a hidden safe in the office had been quote-unquote defeated, meaning that someone who didn't have access to the combination had gained entry. Between $4,000 and $5,000 was stolen. Eddie's work keys were also missing, keys that were needed to both enter and leave the building. The day manager also discovered that two knives were missing from the kitchen, a Swibo yellow-handled butcher knife with a 12-inch blade, and a fish fillet knife with an 8-inch blade. Although it was readily apparent to the police that Eddie had been viciously stabbed to death, coroner Emile Riley confirmed at the scene that Eddie had been stabbed seven times to his upper right back. Although Eddie's family believes that the number of stab wounds may actually be as many as 13, the authorities believe the two missing knives were likely the murder weapons. The interviews with the staff on shift the night of the murder yielded useful information. Some of the employees saw that the back door was either unlocked or propped open when they left for the night, which was a common practice because employees had to put the trash out. Police suspected that this open door was how Eddie's murderer entered the building. One of the employees drove four of his co-workers home sometime between 11.30 and 11.45 p.m. On the employee's way back past the restaurant, a little after midnight, He thought he saw three unknown males loitering around the rear of the restaurant, but assumed they were just other employees getting ready to leave for the night. Although the police collected all this information from the employees at the steakhouse, nothing ever really came of it. In the days following the murder, the authorities learned that no unexpected prints were lifted from the scene. They also determined that none of the individuals they had questioned had a criminal history. A memorial service for Eddie was held on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary campus, and he was laid to rest in Marietta, Georgia. The Baptist church community came together and helped the family. A memorial fund was established by the seminary, and church members provided whatever emotional and financial support they could offer. The support was much appreciated, as Eddie's murder left a huge void in the Abshire family. Vicki who had married Eddie the day after she finished high school, had to learn how to write checks, pay bills, and even more importantly, attempt to somehow comfort and raise her five children through such a tragic and heartbreaking loss. No arrest has ever been made, and Eddie's murder still walks free. Unfortunately, corruption in the New Orleans Police Department may have also played a role in this case going unsolved. In the 1990s, as a result of an FBI sting operation. It came out that numerous officers in New Orleans in the 1980s took bribes and provided security for local drug dealers. An individual later found guilty of these crimes was also one of the officers who responded to Eddie's murder. Could this involvement in illegal activity have impacted his handling of the case? It's definitely possible considering that a large majority of the police file in Eddie's case was lost. When Vicki was sent the report on her husband's murder, it was accompanied by a handwritten note from the commander of the homicide unit. The note explained why the family was not receiving a full copy of the file. The note read in part, Some internal problems in our office resulted in the original police file being lost. As a result of that file being lost, 
Countless hours of investigative work and original documents were gone. That note also indicated that the officers who worked on Eddie's case knew the identity of the killer, but lacked sufficient evidence to charge the person they suspected with the crime. There have long been suspicions that the crime was an inside job. Somehow, the killer knew about the hidden safe and was aware that Eddie's keys were needed to unlock the door to leave the restaurant. Police also felt that pulling Eddie's shirt up over his head might be a sign of remorse, indicating that the murderer knew Eddie and felt guilty about their crime. It also makes sense that if the killer was a staff member, their fingerprints would be expected to be at the scene, raising no alarm bells. More than 30 years later, New Orleans cold case detective Winston Harbin started looking into Eddie's murder. He found that many of the Bonanza Steakhouse employees were disgruntled at the time of Eddie's murder, with one of them even being fired on that very night. Harbin has narrowed his list down to two persons of interest. The first employee in question left work around midnight and was the last person to leave the store. After cleaning up and putting out the trash, he may have left the door purposely propped open to gain access at a later time. However, this employee's mother provided him with an alibi reporting that he arrived home from work at 12.10 a.m. on the 13th, and that when he arrived home, nothing was out of the ordinary. The second person of interest is the employee who was fired for his poor performance and for making threats against a co-worker. Although this employee was fired by the assistant night manager, not Eddie, Eddie was asked to be present during the termination. This person also had a family member provide him with an alibi. His half-sister told authorities that she had picked him up from work a little before midnight and drove him straight home. Since Eddie's murder, this person of interest has had many run-ins with the law. He served time for aggravated robbery a few years after Eddie was killed. And while on parole for that crime, he was arrested for his involvement in the shooting death of 14-year-old Mikhail Jackson. Although the charges were eventually dismissed due to a lack of witness cooperation, this person of interest's criminal history makes him a much more likely suspect. Ever since her father was killed in 1981, Alan, who was just 22 months old at the time of the murder, has not given up hope that her father's killer may one day be identified. I talked with Alan about her dad's murder, its long-lasting ramifications, and her quest for justice. That conversation is next after a message from our sponsor. Welcome to the show, Alan, and thank you for coming on to discuss your father's case with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. As much exposure as we can get is definitely appreciated. It's my pleasure, and hopefully we can get some, some new exposure for the case how old were you in 1981 when your father was murdered? Well, I turned two about six weeks after he was murdered. It happened on my sister Alicia's seventh birthday. There were five of us all together. So you, you were really robbed of the chance to ever get to know your father? Absolutely. I don't know his voice. I don't know his laugh. Unfortunately, you know, that's before the time when videos were very prevalent, so... I've never seen my dad live and in color other than just pictures. 
That's awful. And then to the fact your sister had that happen on her birthday is probably something that she was reminded of constantly as well. Yeah, you never know whether it's a day to celebrate or mourn, but we've always just decided to celebrate. And I know you had a, a big family. Uh, how many siblings did you have? Four, is that correct? I had five. There's, there's five, four siblings. There's five of us total, three oh. girls and two boys. And we aged um, at the time. The oldest was um, 12, and then I was the youngest, the baby, um, just shy of being two. When you moved to New Orleans, you your family wasn't there in New Orleans for very long when this happened. Uh, no, correct? that's correct. We had just moved to New Orleans in October. My father, um, my mother and father were high school sweethearts, and they married and had five children. And then my dad felt the call to go into the ministry, and he was attending the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary there in New Orleans. And we had just moved there in October, and he was murdered in the middle of June. And I saw in some of the research that I did that he had gone to New Orleans mainly for that reason to to take up uh, his calling in, in the ministry. How important, and again, I assume maybe from talking to your mom uh, and and your older siblings that maybe they shared a little bit of this, but how important was the ministry to your father? Oh, it was everything. He wanted to um, become a children's pastor. And fortunately, I was able to keep his briefcase, which had a lot of his um, research papers and that kind of thing in it. So um, I was able to sort of get to know him and his views on certain world beliefs and that kind of thing through his research papers. So I consider that a great gift. At the time, was he studying to become a minister or had had he already become a minister? No, he was studying. Okay. And on top of that work, he also was managing the Bonanza restaurant in New Orleans to help support the family. And unfortunately, that's the job that led to him being murdered. That's correct. He had been a manager at um, an Atlanta restaurant where we moved from. And so it was just natural for him to take um, a, a Bonanza assistant manager position. He just basically transferred from the Atlanta one to the one in New Orleans. So it was the same company that he had worked with in Atlanta? Yes. Okay. I assume if he was a manager that he was thought of pretty highly and respected enough to be able to to become a manager and switch states and still get the same kind of job. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Seemed from everything that I've always heard, his employees loved him. You know, there's still people, we moved back to Atlanta and there's still people that come and say, you know, when you say you're an Abshire, people recognize the name because five kids and just the story and still people today will come and say, I knew your dad from the steakhouse. He was always so nice. You know, they still remember him now all these years later. Uh, That must be rewarding for your family to hear that from people so many years later. Absolutely. If you can, I know you were too young to, to really remember what was going on at the time, but as, as your family shared over the years with you and as you've learned from looking into your dad's case, if you can take us back through the steps of of what happened that led up to his murder. Um, well, from the stories that I've been told, 
my dad worked nights and he would usually close and he would stay there after the rest of the employees left and do the, you know, deposits and that sort of thing. And my mother had called him around midnight and had told him to stop at the grocery store to get some milk for the baby, which happened to be me. And he said, okay. And when she woke up at 3 a.m., he still wasn't home. And it wasn't unusual for him to get tired and fall asleep on the couch in his office or something. So she thought maybe that's what it was. So when she woke up again at 6 a.m. and he still wasn't home, she called the campus police. um, And they started calling around for hospitals and no, no car crashes, nothing like that. She had one of the campus police officers take her to the restaurant. And the car was still in the parking lot. And my mom had an extra set of keys and it started. So she knew that it wasn't that he had had car trouble. This, of course, is before the time of cell phones. And so they called the police. And when the police got there, they found his body just inside the back door. And did they have any clues about what had happened or anything like that as far as who had done it? Well, his shirt was pulled over his head, like his, his undershirt had been pulled over his face. And he had been stabbed um, 13 times in the back. His keys were missing, um, which was part of the security feature of the restaurant at the time. You had to use keys to get in or out of the building. Um, There were two knives that were missing from the restaurant. And there was about $4,000 missing from a hidden safe. Um, that was in my manager's office. So from all, from everything that it looked like, probably an inside job. Knowing, in, having knowledge of the security system, covering his face because they, you know, they knew him and couldn't look him in the eye, that sort of thing. Yeah, so it seemed like they knew their way around and knew that they needed a key to get in and out and and exactly. And when he had worked that night, was he alone? Did he close up all by himself? Was that typical? That was typical. When he first came on shift that day, there was an employee who um, had complained that another employee had been, you know, kind of pushing off his duties onto him. And they brought the other employee into the office. And my dad was just a witness. He was only in there to witness that would be a witness for the day manager because they let the the employee that was being complained about, they let him go that day. And um, that was, you know, he said, you know, I'm going to come back. You know what most people say when they get upset and they get let go, especially when they're only 18 or 19 years old, first job. I'm sure he was probably pretty upset. Um, But that was, you know, that was very typical for him to close at night. And one of the last guys there had told them that the back door was propped open because, like I had said earlier, you needed keys to get in or out. And he had propped open the door so that he wouldn't have to keep unlocking it, keep my dad going unlocking it to have him take out various bags of trash. So they had propped the door open. And 
possibly someone just forgot to un you know forgot to lock the door after they left and my dad had no idea. So that person might have snuck in right through that door and snuck up on your dad. Exactly. And you would think with that the employees that had been let go or had a beef with the managers or the owner of the place, you would think somebody like that is going to be high on police radar. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I know that there were suspects in the case that have never been charged. Um, do you know, with, without naming them, do you know anything about those suspects? Yes, I do. Um, the one that was um, let go in shortly thereafter, maybe three to four years later, he was um, sentenced to a 20-plus year sentence for aggravated robbery. Um, and then when he was released, he was implicated in an attempted murder and another murder of a 12-year-old boy. Um, and unfortunately, that, that happened recently. I believe it was 2012. And he spent three years in jail for that, waiting on trial. And the night before his trial was to begin, they dropped all the charges against him. Wow, so he actually got off of that charge. He did. They're they're telling me it's because, you know, they can always recharge him, but if they would have lost, you know, you can't double jeopardy, you can't you can't try him again. So they would have rather had more evidence against him at the time. Now was there any other suspects that you know of or was did police seem to focus mainly on him? They focused on him and a friend of his. Um, the friend of his shortly thereafter moved to Texas and has never had any criminal history since. Um, so I would say that this person would have been more likely the ringleader. And maybe because there was two knives missing, they thought that possibly some, there were two different people? Yes. And then there was a gentleman who had given several other employees rides home that night and his route back to his house, took him past the restaurant, and he saw three people in the parking lot. So we're thinking two people inside, one person as a lookout. And how frustrating is it for your family all these years to know that there's a real strong person of interest that they've never been able to arrest him with? You just, I have no idea. I mean, I just... I know that he spent a long time in prison already for the aggravated robbery that he committed. And really punishment at this point, because he's in his fifties now, you know, punishment at this point is, is second in my priority. I would really just rather know exactly what happened. Just to know the, the, the how and the why and, and the details um, exactly. And as far as the investigation itself, do the police still keep in touch with you and your family and tell you about updates or that they're working on the case still? I do have one detective. I have mixed emotions about the New Orleans Police Department. During that time, I'm, not, I'm sure it's no secret that there was a lot of corruption going on in the 80s. The responding officer is one of the few that um, spent any jail time for that, you know, corruption, which was 
that they were providing protection for drug dealers who were running drugs out of mostly cash businesses, which at that time a restaurant would have been before, you know, everybody had debit cards and everything like that. And that is the only report that survives of my dad's entire case. No autopsy, no physical evidence, nothing. Um, I do have a detective who is amazing, and I really feel like if his superiors would allow him to do all of the things that he would like to do and that I have arranged, I have tried to arrange for him to do, that we could, you know, really get this person. But they just seem very reluctant to help. So it, it seems like there's not much going on then as far as what they're actively doing. When he was in jail for the three years awaiting trial for the um, second murder charge, he um, he was interviewed and asked about my dad's case specifically. And he said he didn't want to talk. And then as the detective was getting up to leave, his only question was, is that charge going to be added to my charges? Which which seems kind of suspicious to say. Oh, definitely. And when all this happened, obviously at the time you were a baby, but um, what happened to your family? How did your family deal with losing, you know, your, your dad when you have, uh, you know, that he left your mom alone and, and, and your brothers and sisters, how did you all deal with that um, that void uh, in your lives? At the time, my mom had married my father straight out of high school. I mean, they got married the day after they graduated high school. And she didn't even know how to write a check. She didn't know how to pay bills. She didn't know how to do any of those things. The men from the church had to come and help her. Um, but just, you know, it's, it's the little things that you really think about the longer that I'm a parent, the more that I see that I've missed out on the help with the homework, just sitting in your dad's lap for comfort, walking us down the aisle at our weddings, you know, just the big things and the small things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very common that there's a ripple effect during, you know, murders like these because the person's life that's murdered is ended, but then everybody else's lives around them changes forever. Um, Absolutely. My dad was only 31 years old. And when I got to be older than 31, it made me realize how young 31 actually was. Yeah, it's very young. And how did your mom uh, go on? How did she keep everything together and, and, and move you guys forward as a family? Well, she always worked. Um, we did move back to the Atlanta area where we had a bigger support system because, of course, we had only lived there nine months. Um, we did have, you know, help from our church family. We had an anonymous donor that paid our power bill for three or four years after my dad died. Um, because this, you know, this story made international news um, at the time. And just just really staying in church and trying to keep us focused and trying to, you know, my, the way my mom told us 
was that she had some glad news and some sad news. And the glad news was that Daddy had gone to see Jesus, but the sad news was he wouldn't be seeing us anymore. So really just keeping our faith in the forefront was how we got through it. So your faith played a big role in in helping you to to deal with all that aftermath? Absolutely. All these years later, we're looking at, you know, almost decades later, 40 years later. um, What have you done to try and uh, explore avenues to, to see how you can help the case? Have you or your family um, taken to social media or, or done anything like that to try and uh, spread awareness of the case? I do. I have a Facebook page called Justice for Eddie Abshire. I've been on the, um, the detective that I work with has had me do two cold cases file um, type interviews with the local news in New Orleans, as well as two radio interviews um, with locally in New Orleans. Um, he really does try. I just, I've, I've also, I'm sure you've heard of the VDOC Society, um, which is, they have agreed to help, but they have to have the, um, the approval of the uppers at the New Orleans Police Department, and they will not allow the detective to have them come in and consult, even though it's free. So you're doing what you can on your end as far as um, reaching out to people, spreading the word on on Facebook. Um, Have you received any tips or any kind of information along the way that you've passed to police that give you some kind of hope? No. It's, it's been pretty quiet. Yeah, it's been pretty quiet. Um, they were hoping that maybe because the other gentleman had moved to Texas and didn't have another, you know, had no further criminal history that he would, be more willing to talk, but when they went to speak with him, he just seemed extremely afraid. And they had spoken to him first, and then went to speak to the gentleman who uh, was in jail and the detectives. That I understand why that guy was so afraid. Like he is a hardened criminal. Yeah, especially if he's out. You know, um, he is now out. Not on parole, not on any type of monitoring at all. He decided, because he did, when they arrested him for the attempted murder, he violated his parole from the aggravated robbery. So he decided to serve nine more months in jail, and then he would be allowed out with no supervision. Uh, And that's somebody that's definitely got some some things in his background that... You know, you hope that he's not going to hurt somebody else out there after having that kind of stuff in his background. Absolutely. I mean, my dad was 31 and this other child was 12 who did die. And the kid that did not die was only 15. Let me ask you this. Is there any kind of, as far as you know, any kind of DNA DNA evidence or anything like that that might lead to the killer in one day lead to the arrest that you know of? Not that I know of. I've tried to get his 
um, autopsy report. I've tried to find out if there was any evidence. I have been given several different reasons. Evidence, file, a room, fire, um, Katrina. I have a letter from the desk of the original detectives stating that they had internal issues at the time and had lost a lot of their case files. So um, it really just kind of all goes back to the beginning that that they really didn't collect as much as what they should have. These investigations seem like they're right from the beginning they're important because a lot of times we hear about investigations being solved decades later. It's because they did save evidence well and they found stuff early on that they were able to hold on to. And, and you would hope that there's something like that somewhere in your dad's case. Um, they kind of feel like that without a confession, this isn't going to be solved. And that's why I don't understand why they will not accept the help from the VDOC Society because those are the top 30 people in the world for forensic science and different techniques. I mean, they've got people from the Israeli intelligence. They've got people from all types of countries that could help them with interrogation techniques that would make the gentleman talk. And I don't, I just can't fathom them not accepting free help from the top experts in the entire world. I just, there's no explanation for that for me. Yeah, there's nothing to lose at this point, you know, this far afterwards. You think they would just try anything to, to see the case solved? You know, I've tried it. I've tried uh, using their egos and saying, you know, think of the great publicity you would have from solving this case from so long ago, you know, but there's still nothing. I write a letter every six months. I get nothing. It seems like there's some kind of pride thing sometimes. Like they're too proud to look for help or ask for help because it makes them look, I don't know, maybe not incompetent, but it just doesn't make them look good, I guess, is the right way to say it. And Um, maybe that's what's going on. That's exactly what the VDOC Society gentleman told me. And they only agree to accept three cases a year. So for them to agree to even take my dad's case was a miracle. Yeah. And I really felt like this is going to be it. You know, this is this is what we need. And then nothing from the press, NOPD, nothing. Well, that's that's awful. And they are really they really do good work, and they're well respected. So you would think that they would take them up on that chance to to work with them. Absolutely. That's that was my. I was so excited to make that phone call. And I could tell from the detective's voice that he was very willing to go and to present the case to them. But he already kind of knew that they would say no. He just told, don't get your hopes up. And I don't want to disparage my detective. He is amazing. He has done more than any other detective that I was assigned since 2000. He has done more for me in the last five years than any other detective. But he can only do what his bosses allow him to do. Yeah, that's the, the the tough part is that, you know, they have their orders to follow and they have to follow the trail of what was collected decades before as far as evidence and everything else. So they sometimes can be limited, but it is frustrating to hear when there's chances to work with somebody like VDOC Society and then to not be able to. Um, 
it seems like a real uh, heartbreaking answer to get from them. Oh, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. is If somebody out there listening somehow knows something about this case and they want to uh, reach out, uh, maybe they heard something or, you know, years ago they knew something but they were afraid to come forward and they're not anymore, who should they contact uh, with information? Crime Stoppers in um, New Orleans, if you want to remain anonymous, there is a reward. Um, you can contact Detective Winston Harbin, H-A-R-B-I-N, with the New Orleans Police Department. Um, when I say that he is a top-notch detective, he got the first no-body case in New Orleans ever solved. He had it brought to court, and with his evidence, it was prosecuted and found the killer was found guilty. He is an amazing detective, and I promise you that he will keep you anonymous. Also, can you just repeat what's your Facebook page for your dad again? It's Justice for Eddie Abshire. And maybe people can go. I know you put things on there as far as news uh, stories and things like that about him, photos and stuff. So if anybody out there listening wants to learn more, maybe they can visit your Facebook page too. Absolutely. Or contact me personally. Send me an instant message on Facebook. And we'll, and we'll definitely and, – and you have a messenger on the uh, on his page too where they can just send you a message? Yes, yes. And, and you can't remain anonymous. Um, I mean, I know it's hard after so much time, especially if it's a family member or a friend or just anyone who knew this person and knows how savage they can be. You can, I promise you that you can remain anonymous. And hopefully somebody, if they know something, would want to clear their conscience and come forward after all this time. That's what we're hoping for. As we close out, Close that with something positive, maybe some stories you've heard about your dad or some, some memories your family shared with you about him. Every picture that we have of him, my very last picture of him um, was taken a day before he was killed. And it's of me riding his back, as you know, like little girls ride on their daddy's back like a horsey. You know, it's of me riding on him like that. Um Every picture I have of him is him down in the floor playing race cars with my brothers or, um, you know, he would even dress up with my sisters. You know, he was the dad that stayed home to remake the birthday cake that my brother knocked over while the rest of us went to church that day. You know, he stayed home and remade the birthday cake instead of my mom. Um, just He was a prankster. He loved to play jokes on his friends, and he was just an all-around loyal husband and a loyal father. It sounds like you were all definitely robbed of having some good years with him. Absolutely. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Bird of My Family. I'd like to thank Christine from the TrueCrimeFiles.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. If you're a fan of reading about true crime, I'd highly recommend that you visit her site, thetruecrimefiles.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend to the podcast and invite them to listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. <laughs>